Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to our 10th Christopher Nolan movie review. Today we are reviewing Dunkirk. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. It's kind of hard to believe we've already reviewed all 10 of his films leading up to his 11th film. It's always crazy when we're coming towards the end of a series, especially a long one too, because it hasn't felt that long. Whereas I know when we reviewed Halloween, that that felt pretty long to me. Yeah, then again, that one also took us an entire year to finish. Um, We did, I think, two every month um, for for that entire year. I think it was two years ago now at this point. So yeah, that one was a bit long, but you, I, I do agree with you that Christopher Nolan retrospective that we've done, or that we are finishing up, it doesn't feel like it's been that long, even though it has been technically 10 movies. It has been nice to go back to his films because a lot of these movies I had seen once or twice and it had been a few years. So, mm. and especially here in the case of Dunkirk, I checked the last time I watched it. I guess I watched it on my birthday on, or it could have been the day, the day before maybe. And then I just logged it on my birthday. But yeah, uh, back in 2018, I watched this movie and I watched it leading up to, because it was nominated for the Oscars that year. Uh, yeah. So I right. watched it at home with my dad. I, I got to watch it in my home theater, which mm-hmm. is, Still a great experience, not quite the same as IMAX, but 140 inches, some great surround sound. That was a good experience, but I did miss this one in the theaters. I did see Dunkirk. I saw it apparently on the 21st of July. Um, yeah, like oh, right it was around an IMAX. when it came out. So I guess I saw it in IMAX. I actually don't remember seeing this in IMAX. Nice. You made the trek over to the west side I, for the I did. IMAX experience. I did. So, yes, I was in the theater for this. You were in the theater opening weekend because this came out. um, Technically, the first showing was Wednesday, July 19th. Right, right. I guess I was. I don't remember this. Dang. (laughs) I don't remember this at all, to be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) I know I was in the theater, but I don't remember. I I don't remember being there opening weekend. And I don't remember there being there in the IMAX. So uh, it was amazing. (laughs) That's all you can say it was, is it was clearly amazing. It was an amazing experience. I, could, I I speak from my own memory. This is also one of Nolan's, this is actually Nolan's second shortest film. That's right. It's not as long as the last few have been. And we've noted that as they go along, they seem to be getting longer, especially with The Dark Knight being 245, or Dark, Dark Knight Rises being 245. And then Interstellar being almost 250, um, they just seem to be getting longer with every movie. But this one, he has kind of backtracked um, in ways of length and also in a couple of different ways where uh, we'll get into here in a second, mostly with its story and how it's told. This is, for all intents and purposes, a very different Nolan film. Yeah, absolutely a very different film. And this is a full hour and two minutes shorter 
than Interstellar, which right. I think was very unexpected. I think Nolan's films, if you um, look at the runtimes, they have they have gone up and up. And um, this, like I said, this is his second shortest film. It's even shorter than Memento. Yeah. So when this movie came out, was it critically praised or was it uh, kind of tepid? So the scores for this movie are, uh, well, it is a Christopher Nolan movie. Um, <laughs> so th- you can kind of expect them to be pretty high, which they are. Um, IMDb at a 7.9, Meta score at a 94. Rotten Tomatoes at a 93 with an 81% uh, audience score. Cinema score at an A minus and a letterbox score at a 3.9. So yeah, they're pretty high all across the board, which again is no surprise because it is Christopher Nolan. It is no surprise. Those scores are very high. In fact, this is his highest rated film on Metascore. A 94 Metascore is almost impossible to achieve if it's outside of like a classic movie, like we reviewed Casablanca and that's a 100 yeah. on Metascore. I think this is one of the highest, if not the highest Metascore that we have for Christopher Nolan in his movies. It, it is weird to me that this movie isn't on the IMDb top 250. Um, I'm wondering if that's something that with time that will be, that will get on there. Um, I mean, Interstellar has an 8.6. This has a 7.9, so there's yeah. a really big difference there. Um, that's kind of the only place that there is a difference because uh, Metascore had Interstellar at a 74, and this one's a 94. Right, right. So cool, 20 um, points. Yeah, pretty much like scores across the board are most are more positive on Dunkirk. Now, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if in a few years, Dunkirk has an even higher score than mm-hmm. a 7.9, as more people come to Nolan. We've seen Nolan's movies all across the IMDb top 250. And it is important to note that audiences gave this an A minus, whereas they gave Interstellar a B plus. So audiences connected more so with a period piece World War II film, which let's be honest, not many uh, World War II or World War I movies are being made except for 1917, which is probably the most recent one. But and I guess Hacksaw Ridge bef- uh, before that as well. So I'm I mean, I'm not surprised at the scores, but nevertheless, I'm glad to see audiences were connecting with it. Yeah. And I there is definitely, of course, the Chris for no name attached to it. Um, so I'm sure that kind of like with the prestige and kind of like with uh, Inception it's since it's a more um, it's not an established property like Batman, his having his name on the projects sure helped a lot as well. So what kind of budget did this movie get? It's kind of interesting because even <laughs> Wikipedia didn't have it locked down to a certain price. Um, it's anywhere from 100 to 150 million. It looks like this movie was probably around 100 million, but that doesn't surprise me because um, there's not a, like a lot of computer visual effects involved. A lot of this is practical. I know that they tried very tried to not have as much as many cgi effects in it as they could help and as far as i'm aware there is basically none i could be very wrong about that but i know that they really push for those practical effects over cgi i did just check this movie actually has been on the imdb top 250 the year it came out it was number it was 175 considered the 175th greatest film of all time okay but it fell off like 
within the year as well. Okay. So it did not make it into 2018, didn't last. But hey, it was on the IMDb Top 250. That's true. That's true. So in terms of how it did in the box office, uh, opening weekend got 50.5 million um, domestically, 190 million in total. Foreign markets, 337.2 million with a worldwide total of 527.3 million. Half a billion dollars isn't bad. Like I said, especially for a period piece about an event that had nothing to do with the United States and which was a lot, which is a major share of the revenue. And it took place almost 80 years ago. So not bad. And especially uh, it was number one opening Mm -hmm. weekend, right? It was number one for the first two weeks that it was out and then dropped number two for the next two weeks. So, um, I mean, it went up against Girls Trip, which was out that week in Valerian, (laughs) a city with thousand planets, which opened at number five. (laughs) In the middle of July? In the middle of July, yeah. Wow. That's surprising. It came out not with a whole lot of competition. Really, the only competition I I see here is Valerian. And as I just said, it opened not even close to number one. Now, Spider-Man Homecoming and War for the Planet of the Apes were also out. But Mm. Spider-Man was already in for three weeks, number two, uh, when this came out. And then War of the Planet of the Apes was on its second week, number four. Wow. So not a whole lot of competition. And at the week that it did drop down to number two... It was when The Dark Tower came out. Even then, even The Dark Tower dropped significantly the next week. I think it dropped to number four the next week. Um, But Animal Creation took the number one spot. It did also look like this movie is maybe his third widest release, the widest release over 4,000 theaters. But it was huge at the Oscars, at the 2018 Oscars. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, It got, I know it got a nomination for, and maybe it, it even won, for cinematography. It did get nominated for cinematography. Hoyt Van Hoytema is back from Interstellar. Mm-hmm. And when we do review Tenet, whenever that comes out, um, Hoytema is back again with Tenet. I don't know if Nolan will ever work with Wally Feister again. I think he's been replaced. So I don't. I doubt there's any bad feelings there. I'm just saying that Hoytema is probably here to stay, especially if he's shooting Tenet. I have no idea what Feister's been doing, but... Yeah. Yeah, this this movie was huge at the Oscars. It did get eight nominations, three wins. Um, Christopher Nolan was nominated for best director, and this was this made his um, fifth Oscar nomination. I see. It was also up for best picture. Yeah, I um, forgot I've, that. I forgot that too. Uh, now this is the year that Shape of Water won. Uh, um. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is when Get Out, Three Billboards, Phantom Thread. Yeah, yeah, I remember this. We, we did, I mean, I guess we did a whole podcast on this, too. Or a few <laughs> podcasts, actually. Yes, we did. So if you want to know our thoughts about the 2018 Oscars, they're, they're for you to listen to. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that's crazy. It was nominated for Best Picture. Nolan was nominated for Picture and Directing. Production Design, Cinematography, uh Hans Zimmer was nominated for the score. We'll talk about that, but it but it mm-hmm. won for sound mixing, sound editing, and Lee Smith won for film editing. That's right. That's right. Now it is interesting too, because I did write a review on this on our website back when it was back when it was first released. Um You did? I'll, I did, yes. Oh, I forgot that. Yes. <laughs> um I remembered it yesterday when I was watching it. I was like, oh yeah, I guess I did write a review on this. Um, I'll bring it up every once in a while. Uh, I'll talk about it later. 
um, to see if my thoughts from what I wrote still remain. Um, but I originally, in that review, gave it an 8 out of 10. I'm going to have to go back and read that because I'm very curious now. I'm, I'm slowly remembering it as you bring it up. So, Alan, clearly the trailer got you into the theaters. Watching the trailer now, would you be back opening weekend? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely would because I would love to see what Christopher Nolan can do with a war film. I remember specifically that I was in the theater and I saw the teaser um, for this movie. It is the teaser where all of the men are out on the that long dock um, and you hear yeah. planes coming overhead slowly. And then eventually one guy like looks up at the sky and then he like ducks his head and everybody else ducks their heads too. And you get that Dunkirk title that comes up. I remember that specifically seeing that in the theater and I was really excited. So yeah. I remember, obviously, I was very excited to see this when I saw the trailer back in 2017. So if I were to see it today, yeah, I would still be in the same mindset. I'd love to see what Christopher Nolan can do with a war film. That just seems interesting to me because he's always been he's always an interesting person to watch and see what he can pump out. So definitely. No one is always doing something different. Yeah. Different genres all across the board. And judging by this trailer, it's raw, impressive, visceral. It gives me this like urgent feeling. Once again, it comes across as like an event film. And absolutely, the trailer would get me in. Um, I remember at the time, I was very curious to see the movie. I was excited. I was looking forward to it, but eventually I just didn't find the time. I missed the theatrical window. So that's why I didn't get to see it until home video. But nevertheless, this movie would have got me into theaters if I could have been. But yeah, before we jump into the plot, just a quick overall bird's eye view. Known films in total have received 30 Oscar nominations, 10 wins. All of his movies together have made $4.7 billion. Jeez. And domestically, 2 billion, foreign, 2.7, 2.7 billion. Um, for a weekend gross, the weekend gross is not terribly high, which seems kind of funny, but maybe across 10 films it is uh, $564 million. And that's mm. with uh, working with, a, he's worked with a $1.1 billion worth of money to make all 10 of his movies. And uh, I'll save the scores across the, the average scores across the board for the end of the review. Yeah. So, listeners, if you haven't seen Dunkirk and you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and check out the film and then come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. The Mole, one week. In 1940, Allied soldiers have retreated to the beaches of Dunkirk. After escaping a German ambush, Tommy finds a French soldier, Gibson, attempting to blend in with the other men. The two attempt to get on the first boat out of the Mole but are unsuccessful, and the ship is sunk just moments after detaching from the dock. The next ship comes, and the two hop aboard to safety. Safety that is short-lived when a torpedo hits the vessel, causing it to sink. Tommy and Gibson join the Highlanders regiment, and they climb aboard a beach ship and plan on sailing it away when the tide rolls in. German soldiers decide to play target practice with it, however, causing the ship to begin to fill with water when the tides do roll in. They are able to make it out to sea, but their ship begins to sink. Another destroyer has been bombed from the sky and is leaking oil into the water. The lone fisherman's boat comes along, taking as many men aboard as she can handle, saving Tony Gibson, Tony and Gibson just in time before the oil catches fire. Tommy and Gibson arrive back on land and board onto a train to take them home. Expecting to be spit on the streets, 
uh, for their heroics, they're surprised to learn that the, that the public is actually sympathetic and happy that they made it out safe. The sea, one day. Mr. Dawson and his, and his son Peter begin emptying their small craft ahead to Dunkirk after hearing the soldiers are running out of time. Their teenage helper, George, hops on board the last second to help them. The trio come across a man sitting atop a, a sunken destroyer and take him aboard. The shell-shocked soldier explains that his ship was struck by a German U-boat, and a downed pilot is also saved after being shot down by German forces. They watch as an Allied destroyer is bombed and begins sinking. They save as many as they can before the oil catches fire and return them home. Unfortunately, while on board, George dies after being pushed down the stairs by the shell-shocked soldier. Peter gives the story to the newspaper about how George was a hero on this day. The air, one hour. Ferrier and Collins are headed toward Dunkirk to provide some air support while civilian vessels approach the beach. On the way there, the leader is shot down and Ferrier's fuel gauge breaks. They get involved with another dogfight which downs Collins. Luckily though, he is saved by a passing fisher boat. Ferrier, now with only an estimate on his fuel, questions if he should turn back, but decides to continue towards Dunkirk, taking down a bombing plane. Now out of fuel, Ferrier glides his craft across the Dunkirk beaches, pulling out the landing gear at the nick of time. Ferrier burns his plane and awaits to be captured by German forces. And that's pretty much it. It's, as you could probably tell by the plot summary, it's told in three different times and three different perspectives. Uh, as I said, the those on the mole, um, the soldiers, they have one week of we have one week span of time. The those on the boat have one day span of time, and those in the air have one hour span of time. And they all, at random moments, will kind of interject and uh, and show their impact on the other time on the other moments for these other two times. It's kind of hard to explain, but that's the way that this movie is edited. Yeah, so I guess that's probably a good enough place to start talking about the film is the way the story is told. Nolan didn't want this to be a narrative. He didn't want to manipulate our emotions in any sort of way. He just wanted to present us with a realistic experience, almost as if he could go back in time, throw a camera on his shoulder and just film what was happening. Right. So he just wanted the experience so I would say in that regard, he does an impeccable job of placing us into the action as it, and it's completely believable as if it was all real, I would say. Yeah, and that's one of the things that when you watch the special features, you get to see how far they went to make this as realistic as possible. We mentioned uh, in the background info a little bit, uh, a little bit ago that um, they didn't really use any CGI. They, and in fact, I like I said, I don't even think they use any at all. Or it doesn't look like that. Because everything they try to do, they try to do um, as practically as possible. Um, so all of these dogfights are actually flown in the air. There's no CGI with real planes that were from World War II around this time. They actually got an IMAX camera inside. I think it was actually a plane that was close enough to it, to the model of the Spitfire. They kind of modeled the outside. They mounted two IMAX cameras. Actually, yeah, two of them. One on the outside, one on the inside. I think they also pointed one back towards the the tail. Um, and then, of course, they mounted IMAX cameras on a different plane to follow them around. So, And also one on a helicopter. Um, so they tried to keep this in the air as real as possible. And they also like built um, they, they built the extension of the mole that would, that would have been there uh, out farther out to the sea. So right. 
they tried as much as they could to make this again as real as possible and i'd say it really shows and they shot this uh in dunkirk that's right they actually when they were scouting out for places they actually the went to the beaches and decided that they were just going to shoot there um instead and if i'm not mistaken the first 17 minutes of this movie is all imax footage because i was really shocked i I'm going into this movie and I'm thinking, did they actually shoot the whole film in IMAX? And I would say a, a large portion of this movie is mostly shot in IMAX. Yes, I believe it's like 75% is all IMAX footage. Mm, um, okay. And I, I, I've, I don't remember much from the IMAX, my IMAX theater experience, as I said, but I do remember that there are only a couple of moments that I can remember the aspect ratio changing yeah. back to that more cinematic style. I remember that actually being distracting, whereas the opposite <laughs> is usually what happens where uh, when a IMAX scene is filmed, that's where you're like, oh, the, the scene has changed because it's, it's filmed in IMAX. And I know, I know Hoytema wanted to shoot most of this in IMAX, and he said he wanted to do things with the IMAX camera that's not really been done before. So mm -hmm. that's why we see IMAX footage underwater. We see a lot of this. Um, it's just pretty incredible because when they were filming The Dark Knight, IMAX cameras were monsters that had to be on yeah. special rigs yeah. and on special cranes. Now they can do IMAX cameras where most of the time Hoytema has it on his shoulders and he's running around following these people around. And um, it wasn't just Hoytema doing this stuff. Nolan was in the planes. He was in the water. Um, in the opening shot when one of the guys grabs the papers to wipe himself with it, for lack of a more cordial term, yeah. no, one, no one is the one that drops those two papers from above. He's literally walking right next to him in the shot. So um, you brought up the special features. You can see all of that in the bonus material, yeah. which is its own Blu-ray disc. It's an hour and 50 minutes longer than this movie. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny that the special features explaining this movie are longer than the movie itself. <laughs> but they're really incredible. They are. Um, I was shocked because they did use a ton of extras. And I mean, a ton of extras, but they couldn't just get too many extras, uh, especially to fill the background. So in the background, a lot of the extras are just cardboard cutouts popped up yeah, on the they, beach. <laughs> they couldn't they couldn't just go out and find, you know, 300,000 extras <laughs> right. and put them all on a beach. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, there are a lot of them out there, but 300,000 is pushing it a bit. Mm -hmm. I do know that they had stated that they were trying to go for, okay, they were trying to say like, okay, well, if, let's say this movie was shot around the time that this whole event happened back in the 1940s. Um, how would they go about filming something like this? And one of the ways they did that would be cardboard cutouts for yeah. the very distant shots of those men on the beach. So that's why they had those cardboard cutouts. Now you would probably never know unless you, you would probably even never know, you know, when they would be, when, they, you, when you would see them in the shot because they're, you know, they're placed that way. But yes, it is interesting to see how uh, they use more traditional styles of uh, props in this movie to kind of give the illusion of there are more men, more men on this beach than there actually are. Now, more shocking to me than the switch between IMAX and the more 235-1 aspect ratio is the fact that no one, I think for the first time, broke his rule of instead of putting the title at the end, which still happens, he puts the title at the very beginning. Well, he did do that with Interstellar. Um, but he, I think you're right. Most of the time, the 
um, titles are usually kept towards the end of the movie. I know with the, the Dark Knight trilogy, they didn't show those titles until the end. That's just always been something big for Nolan is not to put his the film title at the beginning. He doesn't really want you to think of it as a movie you're just about to watch. He wants you to enter into the experience. And then he throws the title in at the end, which I was questioning why he chose to do that for Dunkirk. And I think after giving it some thought, you the opening and closing shots, I would say, reveal why he did that. I do actually love the opening shot of the movie is it's the soldiers walking down the street and they're ducking in mid action of yeah. the pamphlets falling. Uh, we don't actually see that when the plane flies overhead and the pamphlets drop, they're just dropped right into the middle of the shot. And then the very final shot is just this kind of quick lingering reaction of the main guy we follow. And I would say that shows um, we're just looking at a moment in time and then also we're realizing that the moment isn't complete just like neither of these shots are complete i would say he i know that he only got these the main actors who are here um only used those who are british he didn't want to use really anybody american because the the story of dunkirk is very much a it's a british event not necessarily an american one not at all that's kind of i guess his whole goal for this is to make it more of an experience of you are the also you're also with this group of people you're the one also following this main character on the beach in the air and in the sea and you get to see from somewhat of a firsthand account what it would have been like um being on these beaches it's it makes it it makes for a very tense and interesting situation because notably the characters in the story are kind of not really there right exactly and I know Nolan had been wanting to do this film for a number of years and since the nineties, he wanted to do this. Oh, really? I didn't know it was that far back. Yeah. But I didn't know that clearly neither Alan and I are British. Yeah. And I know this event. um, I don't think a lot of Americans know about this event. Um, Mm -hmm. This was before the United States entered world war two, but nevertheless, no one was talking about uh, when he was a kid growing up in England in school, how this was a big event that they learned about. And to uh, the British people, this is a very major event. If you think about it, the British Empire basically controlled the whole world um, for hundreds of years. And it really wasn't until the Revolutionary War in the United States kind of became its own rival superpower that that was changed. But the moment where in this world war where Germany is pushing um, England and France is about to completely overtake France and is pushing England out and then very likely will overtake England very soon. This is a major point in World War Two. And I think upon this watching going into the movie, I, I didn't know the history and I'm not sure this movie is really here to be a more of a historical film to just tell you about the surrounding historical context of it all it's mostly meant to um, let you live and breathe within the situation but nevertheless no one is quoted as saying soldiers waiting for surrender or annihilation and they and the fact that neither of those happen and they live to fight another day makes it one of the greatest true stories of all time you can tell he is very passionate about this movie yeah absolutely and i i know it's interesting because it's a situation and this is kind of brought up here at the very end when the when Gibson and um, 
Tommy are talking and they're talking about, no, we're going to be, we get in, we're going to be spit on the street. Mm-hmm. You know, people are not going to be very happy with us because they're going to see us as cowards. Um, only to be, only to come to find out that that's the complete opposite of what they were thinking. So what the situation is, is when they're, it's a situation where they're presented with two outcomes. Either uh, they, the Germans invade and they die, um, or they end up escaping in time. And they kind of choose one night right down the middle um, where they escape, but they don't feel very honored about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, they they Not feel like they, they failed, right? But only come to find out that the people... The public is not as harsh on it as they initially thought it was. So it's an interesting situation because they were able to survive despite very easily um, having death being the thing that could have been, been the outcome. That is one of the things that I found fascinating about this movie and not just about the movie, but about the historical situation mm-hmm. is this was nevertheless a great defeat by the Allied forces. But nevertheless, there was so much like optimism and hope that they just weren't going to go down without a fight, even though they were pushed out of the continent and back onto their island. They were still going to fight the Germans tooth and nail to the end. So I really did like that message. And it is interesting because I think um, especially after Vietnam and how soldiers came home from Vietnam and were really treated poorly. I just yeah. can't see um, if this were ever to happen in this era and soldiers came home after being pushed out by the enemy. I don't see the positive reaction happening as well. So right. for that fact alone, I like the way Nolan ended the movie, not on a tone of defeat, but on a triumphal note, like out of this defeat will rise up and we will win. Right. And there's also an interesting, it's very, very short, but I, I think it kind of speaks to, um, I guess, kind of what the more representation of the public. There's a scene when they get off of the fisherman's boat and they're getting, I think, uh, they're getting like something to eat and they get like a blanket and they're told right. to get back on the train. And there's a blind man handing the the soldiers their blankets. Mm-hmm. Um, Which was Christopher Nolan's uncle. Right. And <laughs> one of the... Uh, one of the soldiers, like maybe Gibson, he turns to him and says, but we didn't win. And Byman just says, that's enough. You know, like what you did was enough. You survived. And after that, they hop on the train. It's an interesting, it's, it's very short. It's a very short sequence, um, very short exchange. But I think that also kind of shows that, you know, even though the soldiers feel that what they did is not honorable because they're soldiers, they're, they're, they feel like they need to fight, you know. And they are they they couldn't fight in the situation, but they were able to still survive. Think that's enough for them. You know, it's enough that they were able to survive because they were put at odds. That in reality, they may not have probably shouldn't have survived in some cases. And no one does present that juxtaposition throughout the movie of the very old and then the very young, mm-hmm. whereas the old are mostly on the mainland and. Uh, Mark Rylance's character, who is one of the old guys coming to pull him out of Dunkirk and bring him back home. He says, um, men my age are the ones who decide this war or something along those lines. And so it is interesting that the older folks are far more optimistic. Even the blind man who literally can't see 
um, what's going on. He still has kind of this hope and optimism, whereas the young men that are on the front lines that are faced with all these near-death experiences um, aren't very hopeful. And mm-hmm. especially because these are young teenagers, whereas yeah. um, like Tom Hardy's character, Kenneth Branagh's character, and even the, I don't know, the one guy that um, eventually leaves with them. He's, he's always in the brown. I can't remember his name. But I think we just kind of see that progression of maturity, of understanding that maybe you did get knocked down at this point, but we're just going to come back stronger and be grateful for, because um, Churchill won at 30,000 and Churchill got 300,000 out right. of the situation. So I do like the difference of perspectives um, shown during the war. And it's not just, I, I know uh, Nolan's wife, Emma Thomas, was like, we didn't just want to show a bunch of old guys in boardrooms talking Mm -hmm. about the war. We wanted teenagers on the front lines. We wanted 30 year olds doing their thing, uh, fighting it out that are a little bit more mature. And then we wanted the old men to um, bring in their perspective as well. So I thought that was really great to do. Yeah. And I know that they cast a lot of 17, 18, 19 year olds to play a lot of these roles. More of the, pretty much all of the soldier roles were played by men of those age groups. And most of them, I think the most uh, well-known actor here is Harry Styles. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is One Direction. I wasn't, yeah, I was not expecting that when I was in the theater. Um, I did not think that Harry Styles would play a you know a prominent role. But either way, uh, no one's uh, justification for this is he's casting very unknown actors, right? Oh yeah, he's casting actors that are not very. Uh, that aren't as popular. And he does that because he wants, again, kind of to help with the realism and just pulling you into the situation. He, You don't really know anybody, and that's kind of the point. He wants you to kind of experience this along with them. Um, he doesn't really want you to make an attachment to some kind of actor um, that you know pre-existing, that you know previously before this. I, I find that to be interesting, an interesting choice, because when I was watching, I was, I was thinking, I don't really know anybody here. I know... Uh, Kenneth Branagh and I know Tom Hardy but I mean you wouldn't really know it was Tom Hardy until the very end of the movie Mm -hmm. Um, but like the main character that we follow Tommy I I don't think I've seen him I think he's I think it's Fionn Whitehead Um, so it's an interesting choice to cast relatively unknown actors yeah and I do appreciate that actually because I think it lends more towards realism It's not just like, oh, yeah, there's Tom Cruise running along the beach. It's like, I have no idea who these guys are. These are actual British citizens. Everybody in this movie is. And it I think in a way it makes it more relatable that these are just average young men um, that don't have a lot of experience because it's just like these soldiers. These soldiers didn't have a lot of experience as well. And. I know on the special features, Harry Styles was talking about how it was pretty scary filming this movie because they're not on a closed set. They're out yeah. in the middle of the English waters and Nolan is blowing up a destroyer and water's flooding in. So it's very realistic the way they did this. It's not some, I mean, nobody's going to die. It's okay. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, no one was going for pretty extreme realism, really trying to sink some ships right off the coast of uh, France there. So I do like that um, these are unknown actors. And I like that Nolan um, 
I like that Nolan wasn't going to put these guys in situations he wasn't willing to be in. Did you hear that uh, him and his wife crossed the channel like um, in a boat like the Moonstone, like Mark Rylance and the two boys do? Yes, and I think that's actually where he came up with the idea for Dunkirk um, was when he was crossing the channel with his wife. Back, I think, in the 90s, he's like, man, I, I kind of want to do Dunkirk. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. They both were like, it was actually pretty stressful in a small boat. It was pretty rough. But nevertheless, it did give him a whole new appreciation for it. And right. I thought it was really cool that um, a number of the survivors of Dunkirk uh, were still alive when they were making this movie. So no one got firsthand accounts while that's crafting right. yeah. the story. Yeah, that's right. Now, I have to say, um, I think I mentioned this in Interstellar, um, that I, when we watched Interstellar, I, if I remember right, I mentioned that I think that movie is the best looking Nolan movie that we have so far. Um, I could say the same for this one as well. Oh, I think yeah. it's kind of a mix between... Uh, Interstellar in this one, but I think I'm going to go for this one because he also uses natural lighting. Um, he doesn't have like a, like we mentioned, he's kind of most of the time on the beaches, actually in the waters of Dunkirk. Everyone, I mean, he is, there are still sets that they use mostly with the sinking ships and whatnot. But for the most part, everything that you see here is realistic. Um, as at least is as real as you can get it uh, for a movie of this caliber. And I would say, I think this is, I, I mentioned this in the review as well. Um, this is, in my opinion, the best looking Nolan movie that we have. But Interstellar is very, very close. I would say this is the best looking one as well, just due to the realism of it all. Especially because Interstellar is still gorgeously shot. But oh, yeah. Yeah. it's just a different feeling knowing that these are... Um, and. You know, a lot of those locations in Interstellar are real. They shot up in Iceland. Mm -hmm. um, they did shoot out in this freezing water that just touched the horizon. So um, a lot of that was real as well. But yeah, ooh, especially because they use IMAX so much. And yeah, just watching those ships blow up and watching the dogfights in the air. And I'll tell you some of the shots that give me chills every time I watch this movie is when... Tom Hardy's plane runs out of gas and he is not going to land until he knows they're safely off. And you just see this, that eerie silent shot of him just gliding along the beach. Yeah. And it's just completely quiet until that plane is coming and um, Kenneth Branagh closes his eyes and he's like, we're doomed. And mm. then uh, Hardy shoots the plane out of the sky and everyone's cheering. And then there's yep. that aerial shot of just him going along without any gas propeller. I love that scene. It gets me every time. Oh yeah, everything in the air is is amazing. It looks incredible and I love it because it it really makes you feel like you're in the air. And oh, yeah. it, it's kind of funny because pretty much all of the footage that they could use, the only thing usable audio-wise was the dialogue. Um, so pretty much everything here is kind of made up. Um, they had to use other sound effects and kind of craft the scene that way instead of recording uh, on set. Um, but again, that just kind of helps give more realism because of how they did it um, and how realistic it sounds. It it makes those scenes feel like you're actually in that plane. And those aerial shots are incredible because they're act they actually mounted a couple of IMAX cameras to a plane and actually flew around and filmed these dogfights. And it's 
the like I said, these these arrow shots are incredible, uh, and they look amazing. And it's really kind of cool to see a IMAX camera flying through the air at 200 miles an hour filming for a movie. Oh, yeah. And if you think they did a good job recreating these planes, well, they didn't. Those are real, the real yeah. planes. They actually like, put out a call for, to the public like, hey, do you have like these specific Spitfire models mm -hmm. just that mm -hmm. we can use to film? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... Uh, a lot of the planes are are real, so a lot of the stuff you see, that's the actual mole that mm -hmm. they stood on. Now, clearly, they had to uh, reconstruct some of it, yeah. um, but nevertheless, that's where they were standing when the bombs were coming and when they it was all going down. Um, did you notice uh, Michael Caine's voice? Is that a yes. Fortis leader? Yes, he is in... Well, I think one, maybe two scenes, but it's just his voice this time around. Yeah, but cool. he's still technically here. Yeah, in this movie, as he's <laughs> been for the last I don't know how many, but a lot. Yeah. Oh, so he's. I want to say he started with uh, the Prestige, if I'm correct. I thought it was her. No, no, no. It would have been Batman Begins. Yeah, that was earlier. That's right. Batman Begins, all the way back in 2005. So he's been with Nolan for 12 years. But yeah, I'm glad. I thought that was cool. He was worked in there. I actually didn't uh, pick up on that. I had to look that up. Yeah, that I picked up on that. I remember when I first watched it, I picked up that. I was like, ah, oh, there is Michael. I think because I was partially actively looking for him. Ah. Um, because I knew he would be in here somewhere, as per uh, per tradition for no one at this point. Yeah, and he's got Sir Kenneth Branagh and Mark mm -hmm. Rylance, both uh, Academy Award winning actors. And I completely forgot Cillian Murphy was in this aka the scarecrow yep um, he's also kind of a returner as well yeah uh, not as prominent as kane or has been around as long as he has but right. he's becoming kind of close to that yeah because he was in the dark knight trilogy and inception so mm -hmm. four nolan films within the past few years but he was um a good addition actually and i didn't remember what his character was all about but I think he does a good job of portraying, uh, I think a lot of facets of real life people are portrayed well in this movie. Those that mm -hmm. are brave and then they become shell-shocked. They're very young at heart, the naive ones like George that are brave and they end up losing their life. And then our two leads, one we figure out is actually a Frenchman who are kind of comical in many ways, but they're also kind of cowards. Um so, yeah, I think there is kind of that good depiction of kind of like all sides of humanity revealed in this one situation. Right. And we do get to see how, um, especially when they're pushed so far, even though they're all on the same team, um, they're willing to. And this happens kind of in the boat when they hop on the boat to hopefully float away when the tide comes in, um, only to then be shot at by Germans. Gibson, they were very quick to tell Gibson, why don't you go up so we can lose some of the weight? <laughs> yeah, that that was a good sequence as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. they're all fighting. And then once they all start to drown and the tide pulls them out, yep. I, I would probably say the movie gets better as it goes along. And especially there towards the end, I'd probably say the last 20 minutes is some of my is probably my favorite part of the film, actually. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, um. Of course, Nolan always seems to have to have a twist. So I did like the fact that one of the characters we are constantly sticking with and this one that never talks, and I never questioned why he didn't talk, 
but he is still, I just thought he was shy, but he's always ready to escape. Um, Harry Styles character thinks that he's a German and I thought, oh my gosh, that's crazy. But then I thought, wait, the Germans are winning. Yeah. It doesn't really make any sense. So it turns out he's French and he, he does drown in that boat, doesn't he? No, I don't think so. He doesn't make it out. He's the one that can't reach the ladder. That's, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I, I thought that was somebody else, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So I do like that in many ways, not just with character moments, but also uh, the usage of sound as well. There are a lot of surprise moments. Just when you think it's time to kind of settle in, there's going to be some super loud gunshot or mm. explosion. And I jumped a couple of times in this movie, actually. Yeah, um, this movie so, definitely does not let you breathe until the very, very end. No, you are just living in the fear of the moment. And yeah. if you think you're comfortable, you are probably about to get shot at or something. Yeah, yeah. So, I mentioned this in my review. It's like a winding guitar string for an hour, about about an hour mm. in almost the entire runtime, an hour and 45 minutes up until the very end when they're on the train. And then uh, the guy is reading the newspaper. He looks up and Tommy's asleep and then the ticking stops and it's silent just for a brief moment, um, which is kind of relieving. Yeah, it definitely is. And it is relieving because you're just used to jumping so much at that point. You're just on edge, mm -hmm. uh, especially by the end of the movie. And I would say probably once they do safely get off, then that is kind of the rewarding moment that, yeah. oh, you can breathe. But at the same time, you know that the battle's still done and not all of the British uh, were evacuated because uh, Farrier, Tom Hardy's character, is captured. And right. he does that. Um, he allows himself to get captured um, so he can stay behind to fight. And we know Kenneth Branagh's character stays behind as well. Right. So a couple few things before we get into some of the more negatives I have of the film. Um, I do really love that George is recognized in the paper as a hero and how he talked about wanting to write for the paper. I thought that was a nice character moment to show Mm -hmm. to recognize just the bravery because he was brave to go across there. He might have been kind of naive in some ways, but I really did appreciate that as well. And if I haven't mentioned it already, the usage of sound, this movie so deserved to win for sound mixing and sound editing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like I mentioned a bit ago, uh, when we're in when there are shots inside of the uh, of the cockpits, you feel like you're actually inside of that cockpit. Um, or when you're, when you're down below inside of the boat, uh, you feel like you're actually inside of that boat, uh, especially when it gets hit by a torpedo. Yeah. These, this movie deserved that sound mixing and sound editing, uh, those two Oscars. So I gotta say though, I am disappointed this time around, especially it was hard for me to really become fully invested in this movie. And I think that might be due to the fact that there are three main sections of the movie that we keep three main parts to it the air land and sea and right. they were all integral to dunkirk but nevertheless i feel like nolan kind of has put himself in the unenviable position of giving all three enough screen time and the same amount of importance as well and so that's why the movie begins with one week one hour and one day which ultimately just confused me the first time I watched it. Now, I understand this more now, um, but nevertheless, 
And especially because we don't, we do have some central characters we follow throughout the whole thing. Um, but using, making a movie that, especially because I think Nolan's done a pretty good job of making characters I'm at least interested in. They may not be always incredibly relatable, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. I'm usually invested in the characters. This is just weird for Nolan to write basically just non-characters. They're just soldiers that are in this movie and trying to portray just like real people in real situations. I, I don't know, Alan, how do you feel about it? Yeah, because war films usually follow one or a collection of characters and we get to see how the situation of war affects them, right? In this one, we don't really get that. Uh, this one, it only takes place, it takes place in a very short amount of time and the characters that we do see are lightly treaded upon. Um, we don't really have any backstory to practically any of these characters. And so we're just kind of thrown into it um, knowing only what we're seeing, and that's really about it. So I, yeah, I can see, and I do kind of agree with you, my investment is kind of, I guess, not, I, I'm not as invested in this as I, th as I thought I would be when I, at least now when I'm watching it, and I kind of felt this when I was in the theater, because there's no central character, and we get to learn about the, about this person's life and you get to know about how they work and things like that it does kind of pull away from some of the experience now i think he kind of makes up for that in how he edits the movie and that being having three different perspectives of on the on the mole in the air and then in the sea and we get to see how those three even though they're seemingly completely different at the very beginning of the movie how they all affect each other at the at the end so it's kind of a it's kind of a I don't know a give and take situation for me. I find that part interesting how he tells the story, but because there's no central character, it does kind of affect it. And that's hard because coming off of Interstellar, I was really invested in that movie. As yeah. go back and listen to my review, check out my score because I was so invested in that movie and Matthew McConaughey's journey. And I do think Dunkirk is a great experience, but it's not necessarily, I mean, and there's not much he can do with it. It's a period piece. It's um, a true story. Mm -hmm. So there's not a ton of suspense with it because, I mean, just Google it and you'll know how the how it ends. They evacuated Dunkirk. And then, of course, we know the Nazis, well, yeah, the Nazis lost. Yeah, this is World yeah. War II. So that makes it a little hard. But nevertheless, Nolan said, I'm making an experience. I'm not really here to tell a story per se. It's just the story of the actual event. And I'm not going to do it in a character-driven way. I'm going to do it in an event-driven way in three major events. So the closest we can get to relating to people, I would say, is probably... Um, Mark Rylance's character and his son and uh, George on the boat. Right. right. And uh, how they're trying to kind of, it's kind of like a microcosm for the world. Everything's kind of going crazy and people have different opinions on what should be done. And we have all ages represented there. So I, I think that's fascinating in a lot of ways. And I think George is like a tragic character we can cling on to and we, do see like the loss of uh, innocence in that way and how the war has affected 
uh, every part of life in the even the very young and innocent. But nevertheless, right. I got to say, I wasn't too invested in this movie. And maybe this isn't a very nice thing to say, but I did kind of wish maybe you're going to feel totally opposite, Alan. I did actually wish I was watching 1917 while watching this movie because they're oh, very similar in a lot of ways. But, oh, I loved 1917. Yeah, I know that uh, I did not exactly love 1917. <laughs> I know, I saw your score. I'm like, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a conversation for a different time. But um, I, I, I know that the decision to make this a, an experience rather than a character-driven story is not an accidental one. Um, I know that no one is going for, how about we just show the situation and have the situation kind of be the character, not the characters themselves be the right. ones that are the character, right? That's the, that's the mindset that no one has going into this. And I, I understand why he would do that. Um, he doesn't really want you to get emotionally attached to a certain character rather the situation. Plus, this is also a, a moment for... Um, for for the British, that uh, that of it's an, it's a war moment for the British, right? That's what this whole situation is about. So I get what he's going for, and I think he does it very very well. But I'm I'm with you. My enjoyment with it might be because I don't, and probably just because you and I are American, we don't really have we we don't really know a whole lot about the situation. Right. Um, we or the attachment. Right, we don't have much of that at all when we come into this movie. It's interesting to learn about um, and definitely makes me more intrigued to figure out like more of the details in the situation. But we don't necessarily have the attachment. So maybe for somebody who is an American, this is a very different experience for them. Seeing a very, um, a very talented director coming and making this movie, I think that that would be a very different experience than you and I. Now, so far as like in the scheme of no one's oeuvre of work, he has consistently been developing larger and larger worlds with very large contained narratives Yeah, that uh, have these like big arcs to them. Well, this movie, I don't think really has that per se. And so I couldn't help but while I was watching this movie, feel like comparing it to the rest of his films, this felt more like a DLC like downloadable content, it just, it, and that oh, that really struck me as weird. This movie is very epic in a lot of ways, but as far as a Nolan film goes, it's so short, it almost feels like, it's like, yeah, I am working on something much bigger than this, but in the meantime, you know how Nolan would put out movies in between um, the Dark Knight films, and right. they just became more ambitious. This does kind of feel like a movie that a passion pet project he just wanted to put out. And yeah, we're getting Tenant now, which mm. I, we don't know much about that movie at all. But nevertheless, I just was getting, especially in the era of video games where you have the 30 to 60 hour experience and then the DLC comes out and it's 15 hours. It's still a big epic thing, but nevertheless, it's just not going to be like the same game. So I don't know. Is that a fair comparison or is that... Is, is that not? I don't know. I would say that Dunkirk is a very different Nolan film. Um, I think that's, uh, I think that's, these to me is pretty obvious because okay. his last movies have always very, have always been very character centric. You have a main character who has to struggle with some kind of idea um, and eventually 
live or die to that idea, right? Um, that's kind of that's been the case for all of his movies. So I see this more as more of an experiment um, in some ways to what he's done before, because there's no main character per se in the story. And if you call it that, they're very surface level, and they're meant to be that way because, as I said before, the main character here is the situation. It's very much um, it, it's it's a very it's a very different situation than what you and I are, are, are I guess, attached to. So I, and I don't know, this film's kind of hard to for me to compare to his other ones because his other ones are have always been about scale, especially since um, since Batman Begins. They've always been big in scale. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, it, I see it more as more experimental um, than I do, uh, I guess, the way that you see it, at least to me. Now, I might make you mad by saying this, but I was I say we just went from Hans Zimmer's best score with Interstellar to Hans Zimmer's worst score here with Dunkirk. Okay. Why do you say worst score? I'm curious. So I listened to this whole score before the Oscars because Hans Zimmer got the nomination. And you know what? Hans Zimmer deserved the nomination last time, and I was bummed he didn't win for Interstellar. Mm -hmm. I don't think he deserved the nomination here. Hans Zimmer either will do a big theatrical movie score or he'll do something just completely experimental, completely different. Nothing that is meant to, uh, I call this score kind of like, it's just kind of like keeping time where it is the same notes, especially uh, around the one hour, 22 minute mark from the the little boats that come in to save them. And then there are the big sinking ships out there the score is incredibly repetitive and I did find that to be annoying. So I'm let down by this score. I just, there's not much to it. It's mostly just some kind of note or instrument just being repeated over and over and over again. In some scenarios in the movie, I think it does a good job to create like subconscious feelings that are, it's kind of like um, making audible the feelings of the characters that audible the tension of the situation but nevertheless i don't think it's that good and i don't think it's very pleasant to listen to and not worthy of an oscar feel free to completely argue the opposite point <laughs> <laughs> well i'm not going to argue with you because I, I do agree with you in a lot of ways uh i think it's it's got one good track i'll say that i do like this track supermarine um, that's, I have listened to the whole soundtrack myself and that is really honestly the only one that I like. Um, yeah. now I'm, I guess I'll be a little bit more graceful toward it. <laughs> um, should it have gotten the Oscar? I don't know, maybe not, but, uh, cause I, I do, I do agree. I think Interstellar is definitely one of his best, if not his best. I do think that Dunkirk is still good. It is definitely different than what he's done. Um, and I do like the idea that he's taking kind of, he's making it somewhat uh, kind of realistic, kind of like what Jason Bourne did with its score, how it uses a lot of percussion. This one uses, like it actually uses the sound from his watch, his pocket watch as like the main lead for most of these tracks. Um, I find the, the score to be mostly engaging when they're in the air. Again, those air sequences, I feel are the best of the, of the whole movie. Um, but everywhere else, they, it feels like it's more of it's more of uh, an element to raise the tension um, in the scene. 
Um, I don't necessarily see it as engaging as his previous ones. I think it's better than, I guess, what you think it is. But I do agree, it's definitely not my favorite. Actually, let me say this, since we're on the topic of music. Um, I felt that, I think I even mentioned this in the review as well that I wrote. Um, there's too much of it. Uh, especially when you get to the last 20 minutes or so, it gets to a point where this movie, I feel, just becomes too much for me. Um, I think parts of that is due to, due to the score because it's at the, at the last 20 minutes, it's so in your face and there's so much happening and it gets so loud that I felt like that I was partially being overwhelmed. But at the same time, just like this feels like, you know, this should have ended about 10 minutes ago. I'm ready for this movie to finish up. And when it finally does finish up and we have that shot of Tommy asleep and uh, the music cuts out for just for that brief moment, I'm just like, finally, I have some room to breathe. And I, I get it. The idea is that you're not supposed to be able to breathe for most of this movie because you're in the situation with these men. But I think it's to a point where it's to the movie's detriment that it is this way. I definitely agree with that as well. And that's what I was saying is if you listen around the hour and 22 minute mark, I think you'll see what I'm saying because it is the same. I don't know how to describe it, the same track. And we hear that for, I don't know, I probably a solid 10 minutes mm -hmm. and it's just going on and on. And so, yeah, it does become too much. And in some ways, I'm kind of surprised that Nolan did incorporate so much music into this movie. Because I understand um, there's not a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of sound, but then when it comes to actual music, I think he's using that to create tension and feelings that just aren't going to be there necessarily um, through people and dialogue. But nevertheless, yeah, it does become pretty bombarding there towards the end of the movie. And especially because... I felt the situations were tense enough that I didn't need that aid of music. So I didn't feel like it meshed incredibly well. So I was kind of disappointed with that aspect of it as, as well as you are. But okay, one last thing, that final, the final shot, it really throws me off. Now, I love the opening shot and I feel like it's kind of a correlation to that as well, um, especially because there's kind of that repetitive part where he's reading and then Harry Styles has him stop and then reread, which I did kind of like, but nevertheless, um, there is that kind of like swelling the one time the music comes across as theatrical and instead of utterly experimental, well, we are going to be reviewing Dune later this year. And I hear it's the most experimental Hans Zimmer score yet, <laughs> but <laughs> nevertheless, um, we see Tom Hardy's plane on fire and you're like, that's going to be the end of Dunkirk. But it's almost a quick fade to black and then fade in to just the shot of Tommy sitting on the train and then it's credits. That was weird. That threw me off. I don't know if you recognize that or not, how you felt about it. Yeah, I mean, Tommy is our main character, so I guess it's fitting to end on him. Um but yeah, I mean, it's an interesting choice for no one to make. I guess they don't have necessarily as big of an issue with it because... Um, I found it jarring, honestly. I can see why, um, but I, I, I guess I didn't have too much of an issue with it. Mm. Yeah, just the plane burning and the music swelling. It's perfect fade to black. No, 
fade back into Tommy real quick for one last shot, which I do think it's kind of a nice bookend to show that uh, I, I kind of feel like a an allied plane on fire with the Nazis surrounding it isn't exactly an uplifting way and it's a very contradictory way right? Uh, to end the film. So that kind of shot of Tommy shows that um, the story is not yet done. This young man, the hope of the world is going on. Nevertheless, I feel like Nolan in some ways did kind of write himself into a corner of how do I end this movie and wrap up all three segments and Tommy is in many ways our main segment. So you want to give him the final thing and it wouldn't make any sense to really have Tom Hardy be the final shot. But I feel like Nolan is pretty good at making films wrap up. Usually this is his clumsiest wrap up. I would say the Dark Knight Rises, awesome ending interstellar. Uh, I thought was pretty good as well. Um, the Dark Knight probably is his best ending with Batman and Gary Oldsman's voiceover going on. I just expected something a little bit more. So, eh, it's it's weird, but it's okay. I'm not going to downgrade him too much for it. Mm -hmm. Well, Alan, I gotta say, I'm I'm actually very curious. What is your rating and recommendation for Dunkirk? So, I guess since 2017, my thoughts on Dunkirk haven't changed a whole lot. They have a little bit, um, which is to be expected. Because I think I've seen this about three, four times now. Um, I do it on Blu-ray. Um, I specifically went out and bought it on Blu-ray. Uh, my thoughts on Dunkirk, I guess, summarized are, I think it's visually striking. Um, which is no surprise, because it is Christopher Nolan. And Christopher Nolan films have always looked very good. Um, but this is close, if not better, than Interstellar. Um, they both of these movies look incredible, and as, as I mentioned many times before, uh, the aerial sequences are definitely some of the best um, that we have from Nolan. Uh, so visually, if this was, if we were, if I was voting or giving my rating on visuals alone, this would probably be a ten out of ten or eleven out of ten. Uh, but of course, that is not the only thing that makes a good movie. Um, in terms of its story, I think that while the editing choices of splitting in uh, the three sequences of air, sea, and, uh, and land do make it for a more intriguing picture and how the story itself of this situation, Dunkirk, is more of a character, not being able to follow the characters and learn about characters is kind of a weird choice to me. Uh, I understand why he did it, but I, it kind of pulls me out a little bit. Um, so I do like this movie. I think it looks very good. The music is, it's, it's there. Um, so I'm going to give it a seven out of 10. I'm still going to give it a recommend um, as I've done before. I think partially what's pulling me back from this situation is I find it to be exhausting um, to a point, again, to its detriment, as I've mentioned before during that second, especially the last 30, 40 minutes. It's just exhausting and not as much, not a character that we can follow through with all of the thematics to all that. This is not, this is the most thematically uh, empty movie that we've had from Owen so far in terms of exploring an idea, which is not necessarily a bad thing, um, but it is an observation. At least his writing isn't as just outright obvious as to his as to his theme or worldview or motivation, I would say, though, right? Well, th this one, uh, the dialogue in this one wasn't uh, wasn't very subtle either. Um, mm. You know, you do have that line of, you can practically see it. What? Home. 
you have lines like that in here. But again, um, I'm not too worried about it because it's not like there are a lot of characters here anyways uh, that like are here to present an idea. So Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk is a monumental ode to the brave British soldiers of the Second World War. Nolan, being British himself and listening to him speak of how he heard of the event while growing up, you can see how this is a passion project of his. Surprisingly, Nolan doesn't craft a conventional war narrative, but rather makes an experience. The story is about the pivotal moment in time when the Allies were faced with defeat, when they still clung on to hope. Despite this story taking place nearly 80 years ago, the message of hope in the face of great defeat will always remain relevant and uplifting. Unfortunately, trading an experience for a character-driven narrative makes this film hard to stay fully invested in. Not only that, but the Nol- but the Nolan? No. Not only that, but the way Nolan plays with time on the land, air, and sea is confusing and not all that great once you figure it out. I wish he would have just stuck with telling the story straight through, but I understand bouncing between three narratives within the same time frame is difficult. My highest praise is for the directing, practical effects, and sound. Rarely do we see something and hear something so real in a film. This is the definition of a cinematic experience. While this is a solid presentation on many fronts, I am unfortunately not as invested, nor is there the lasting impact no one is hoping there will be in me. Dunkirk receives 7 stars out of 10 with a mild recommend. It's interesting because you and I have uh, almost opposite thoughts on the on editing of the land, air, and sea um, yes, we do. <laughs> element to this movie. Because I like it. I find it to be... Uh, what keeps me engaged, but I, it sounds like you are the complete opposite. You find it to be more confusing. I it didn't keep me engaged, uh, especially the first watch around, because I was just so confused <laughs> as to when certain events were playing out. Because no one does give you visual cues when the planes the planes will fly over the boats, but once again, I feel like he's just being too tricky with time. I mean, time moves more slowly because they are waiting for these boats. It takes the boat slower and planes can fly faster. So all of these events are happening within the same time frame, but they're happening in quicker succession of each other because of the speed of how everything is moving. So to me, it ultimately just becomes just too confusing. And I feel like it doesn't do anything very significant uh, by the time you do find out everything that's happening because we see... Um, we see certain events play out two or three times, mm -hmm. but from different perspectives. Now, I like the different perspectives, but nevertheless, I don't feel like there's any grand reveal of like, oh my gosh, that's what that character was doing. Or, wow, that does give me a whole new perspective on the situation. It's just like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're just, I, I feel like he's just being different because he's Nolan and he has to do something different and play with time. Like ever since inception, got them all messed up and... I would even say the prestige probably too is when he really decided to get tricky with his movies, but mm -hmm. it's not terrible. I just don't think it's great. Yeah. I mean, I guess I see it differently um, because I see it def more of, uh, you know, it's the same situation happening three different locations. Um, they all end at the same time, um, but they all start at, they all start differently, right? Because the mole is taking place over many days. 
Um, right. Whereas the last two were taking place for one day and one of them just an hour, right? So you get to see how, yes, different perspectives on, uh, on different things that happen in the story, but it's definitely more of how each element of this has an effect on the other portions of the story um, and how it's now if they were losing one of these, if they didn't have the air support, how they wouldn't have all survived or they didn't have the sea support, how they wouldn't how the people on the mole wouldn't have survived. So I, I see it. Um, I see it more as uh, definitely an editing choice uh, to tell the story from how these three different elements need to be there to tell the story and to finish the story off. Um, so that's how I see it. I do think in some ways it's necessary, but in other ways it's just like, I don't know, maybe a little too complex, maybe just for me though. I mean, I don't know, but eh, it's, it's not too bad, but I don't know. In some ways I'm curious to see how Nolan will approach the narrative structure of Tenant. Um, well, I guess I take back what I said about the prestige time was huge in memento. I mean, even in following that movie, um, had, uh, chronological, it was not chronological at all. Yeah. That's, so, this, <laughs> playing with time is kind of no one's MO. He does this like it's pretty much in thing. all of his movies. That's his thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm curious to see where we'll go with tenant and how he'll play with that. Hopefully. Yeah. Not too confusing. And I, I do, don't get me wrong. I appreciate that he finds ways to push the envelope with time in every single one of his movies, time within dreams, time within space, relativity, um, time within uh, the lifespan of characters within the prestige. You know, I think he does a good job of it. I think this one just doesn't work as well for me. But anyways, as far as pick up or pass goes, I did get this for a Christmas present. I mentioned that earlier. It's It's been a year or two ago. I have never touched this movie until this review, though. I uh, just watched it that one time at home, and uh, it's been two years since I've seen the movie. I have not had a two and a half years, actually. I've just never had a desire to return to this movie. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can agree this is a movie that you may pull out once every five or more years, but this isn't one I'm just going to be pulling out frequently just to relive the story. Yeah, um, I would probably pull it out to kind of show off like maybe a, a theater system or something like that. Yeah. Because I think that this is one of the perfect movies to do it with. This Interstellar um, would be two of my choices. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it would definitely be used for like a demo. Um, every once in a while, I'd probably watch it probably more often than five years. But to be fair, this is also a movie that when I bought it, I left it in the packaging um, for a while, actually, until... We went over to another guy's house to watch it at his like theater room, um, and then I unwrapped it. So, <laughs> to be fair, I haven't exactly watched it since I bought it. So, until that moment, at least. Yeah. So, but nevertheless, so far we've reviewed all ten of Nolan's released films. Alan and I still have the exact same average score, despite giving pretty different ratings across the board yeah that's, that's interesting to me that uh technically speaking our average is the same but i think they've differed on practically every movie they're almost every one of them have a different score between you and i almost every one of them except this one and inception the dark knight okay. and following his first film okay, okay. 
But nevertheless, we both, on average, give this eight out of ten stars. They are it taken as a whole. These are great films. It's a great. Oh yeah, package. yeah, yeah. Definitely speaking from an overall package from no one uh, so far, at least from all the films we reviewed, except for Tenet, which we were reviewing hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, very good director, which it, I mean, it's no surprise. Uh, again, he, there's a reason why his name is as popular as it is and why he, uh, there's always a group, always a crowd to see his movies. And hopefully that will, hopefully that'll be the case, but everybody will stay healthy. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully this movie won't do terrible. I'm worried about the box office for this movie, especially because of the budget of for Tenant. Mm. But nevertheless, it is interesting for the last three films, Alan, you have given out sevens each time. I know. I know. I've been stuck on sevens the last few movies. So you're the most often score you have given is seven. You have given out five sevens. So half of the movies are sevens to you. Well, yeah, that's about right. So it is interesting because seven is it, it's good, but it seems like for you, no one is either good or he's just awesome he's just superb there's really nowhere in between per se um mm -hmm. because you've given out two sixes five sevens one nine and two tens yep so that's pretty right, interesting yeah. and right. as for me i've given out one four yeah I, for insomnia that's insomnia right. it's awful so i've given out one four one six it looks like I've only given out two sevens, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I've given out two eights, um, three nines. So my uh -huh. most often used score is nine. I've given out three nines and yeah. only one ten. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Take from that what you will, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So nevertheless, one last question before we go. And then before I give the questioner question to the listeners, do you think this is a better movie than 1917? Because yes, I'm not going to let you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, so you've got a choice Alan. you're going to yourself. You've got 1917 and Dunkirk. You're going to pull out Dunkirk over 1917. Yes. Oh my gosh. Here's the reason. Well, I'll give a brief reason why. Uh, 1917 <laughs> does also look very good, but aside from its cinematography, I find its story to be very surface level. This one at least is different and it has somewhat of a different way of going about telling a war story because um, it isn't about characters. I'd rather be, be something different than be something that I find to be surface level. Okay, so you've got Hoytema and Deacons. Who's better? at shooting a war film? There's only one right answer, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's a hard question to answer. Um, uh, I guess I'm going to have to go Haitama because he oh! had... His is his, his, it's varied. The The way that he shoots is is very different from shot to shot, whereas Deacons uh, has to stitch it all together. They're still both very impressive, and it's very interesting that uh, how Deacon stitched all of 1917 together. But I find Dunkirk to be more visually, uh, more visually intriguing to me. So, wow. Yeah. That, wow, we're very, very, we're very different on that because all I could think of was how much I wanted to be watching 1917 while watching <laughs> this movie. I pulled up the Blu-ray.com to check how much the price was. 
it's still 20 bucks. I'm not going to spend yeah. 20 bucks on it yet. But, oh gosh. And it's interesting because Dunkirk's trailers are way better. I thought the trailer for 1917 was like kind of interesting, but I had no interest to see it until it got like 10 Oscar nominations. And mm-hmm. I found out Roger Deakins was the DP. And then I saw it and I personally loved it. Um, at one point until I saw Parasite, it was my movie of the year. <laughs> oh, I really? It, it was. I, I gave it a 9 out of 10 on my first watching. I okay. I was far more invested and pulled into the experience of 1917 than I was with Dunkirk, actually. Um, some points in Dunkirk, I was kind of a little bored, actually. I, whereas 1917, I never was. Um, but you got to admit, they're both very similar in the way they're presenting accurate representations using Mm -hmm. sound and using different scenarios. So I guess that's the one thing I need to ask real quick is what, after watching Dunkirk, what else do you recommend the listeners watch either a movie or TV show? Um, I suppose 1917 because it is a very, (laughs) I say this because it is a more hard. I know it is a more, uh, modern, take on war films right so there is definitely that distinction or that similarity between the two those two although i would also say full metal jacket from stanley kubrick would also be an interesting companion piece to this because that one is very character centric and shows the dangers of war in a very interesting way um i mean it's it's Stanley kubrick so it's also going to be uh have a lot of beat to it as well. So that's what I would suggest. Uh, yeah, I'm going to suggest 1917. And it should be noted, they were, 1917 and Dunkirk were nominated in almost every single category, the same. They each won three Oscars mm-hmm. in almost the same categories. Um, and according to IMDb, 1917's a better film. But yeah, what is it? What is it score? Uh, it's got an 8.3. Okay, okay. As opposed to uh, 7.9. But Dunkirk has a, has a crazy freaking 94 Metascore, whereas 1917 has a 78. Right, yeah. Which, which probably makes Alan feel better. But, <laughs> yeah, it um, makes me feel more justified in my opinion on it. <laughs> um, another <laughs> World War II movie, uh, another World War II experience you should uh, invest in is the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. Oh, I haven't seen that. I've heard so many good things. It is incredible. It is done by, uh, produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. So mm-hmm. highly rec. That one is incredibly emotionally investing. It's told from the American perspective of the war. Absolutely we, check it out. I wonder if we would both suggest, uh, what's that film called? That Steven Spielberg film. Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. If we had both seen it. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Yeah. It's like neither of us movie. have seen it. Yeah. It's like the one movie everyone has seen, but us that's, Mm-hmm. Oh, I got to see that soon. It's it's getting embarrassing. Well, the question after the show, listeners, is is this in your top or bottom Nolan films? For me, it's actually towards the bottom of the top between the top five and top ten. It's in the top bottom five, I should say. Yeah, mine's right in the middle, as evidenced by my score. Yep, straight up. Well, mm-hmm. listeners, we want to know what you think, so make sure to leave that comment below. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we were going to come back with Tenant, but uh, surprise, it got moved again. Uh-huh. So nevertheless, we are going to come back with Jason Bourne. 
and we are going to finish up the Bourne movies. We are coming back with The Bourne Legacy. I'm actually very excited to watch this movie. Tony Gilroy is back not too long after his couple Oscar nominations. Um, so that gives me a little more hope for this movie. I don't remember a lot. I just know it's the longest one in the series. That's right. We talked about this. It's like 2.15, right? Right. Two 15 minutes, which well, it'll be interesting to see because um, I've only seen it. I think I've seen it once. I know maybe twice. So yeah, we'll both be fresh coming into the review for The Born Legacy as well. So make sure to watch that movie listeners before the review hits next week. All right, listeners, we will see you next week with The Born Legacy. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.